You're listening to World Building for Masochists. And we're wondering, why? Why we do this to ourselves? Because you can take the anthropologists out of grad school. But you can't stop them from trying to prove their student loans were worth it. I'm Marie Brennan. And I'm Alyssa Helms. And together, we are M.A. Carrick. I'm Cass Morris. I'm Rowena Miller. I'm Marshall Ryan Maresca, and this is episode 41, Myths, Legends, and Other Lies of History. Well, welcome back, listeners. We have a very exciting guest episode for you today with double the fun. Shall we take it away with some introductions? Uh, Sure. I am Marie Brennan. I'm the author of the memoirs of Lady Trent, uh, but especially for the purposes of this podcast, I'm showing up here as one half of M.A. Carrick, the author of The Mask of Mirrors, which is the first book in the Rook and Rose trilogy. And Alice Helms here. I am the author of The Adventures of Mr. Mystic books from Angry Robot, which are sort of a cross between Shansha and Pulp Adventure. And more importantly, I am here as the other half of M.A. Carrick, uh, author of the Rook and Rose trilogy from Orbit Books. First one being The Mask of Mirrors. Can you tell us a little bit more about the Rick and Rose trilogy? Uh, well, for the purposes of this podcast, uh, I, I think my habit of describing it as when anthropologists attack is not out of place. <laughs> but this actually has the more polished uh, kind of pitch you for throw it. throw me under that bus. <laughs> yes, I do, because I hate that bus. <laughs> uh, all right. <clears throat> the Mask of Mirrors is the story of Alta Renata Veraudex who is also known as Arenza Lenskaya, a con artist who has infiltrated the nobility in an attempt to set herself up with a cushy life, only to run afoul of the Rook, a Dread Pirate Robert-style vigilante whose mission is to oppose the nobility, including the increasingly popular Alta Renata. Capers, banter, double crosses, and identity hijinks ensue. So think the Scarlet Pimpernel meets Lee Bardugo's Six of Crows with a dash of Scott Litch's Lies of Loch Lamora, and you've more or less got the book that we wrote. Soul. <laughs> I'm in. I'm in. I I can tell you all it's a delight. And from the pers- perspective of this podcast with, with uh, in terms of world building, it is brilliant in terms of world building, especially the brilliance of having a main character who is a con artist who is specifically playing a rank above her station. And so therefore you have every excuse for the inner monologue of this character to look at every character and read them and figure out exactly who they are and where they're from and why the little clues on their body tell you where they're from. And also all the little rules of society that the character has to remember to like not break character and not be found out. It's brilliant in that way that makes you put it down for a minute and just think about all the mistakes you've made. <laughs> Because... <laughs> I will say also that's that's a really good technique for avoiding info dumping is having a character who's constantly analyzing and the world around them and comparing it to what they know because it lets you do the world building through contrasting that rather than info dumping. Yeah, uh, which I like. Yes, without doing the the thing of having the naive protagonist who doesn't know anything and needs it all explained to them. Instead, it's someone who's knowledgeable but is having to walk kind of a tightrope with that knowledge and so has reason to be thinking about it and constantly. Well, it sounds like like you're getting taken along for the ride along with the protagonist instead of like having things thrown at you constantly like 
lob some info at you. There, there you. there you go. Have fun with that. So it sounds absolutely delightful. And I can't wait to get my hands on it and add it to my ever-growing TBR. Um, <laughs> but we are here today to talk about myths, legends, and other lies of history. So one thing that I immediately thought of when we were kind of kind of coming up with what we're going to talk about is just how much that seems like a part of the secret sauce of fantasy, having this, you know, element of myth, legend, backstory to your world. Why do we think that's so much a part of of what we almost expect out of fantasy worlds at this point, or we, that we see so often? Like, why why do we do this? Why do we do this to ourselves? <laughs> because it's fun. It is fun. <laughs> Um, so it's funny because I actually think it's it's something that's it's something that I think needs to happen in all of fiction. I think it's more obvious in fantasy because we have to make up the myths and legends to go along with the rest of the story because we're meaning making creatures and to feel real, the characters of our worlds should be meaning making creatures too. And I'm not just talking on the big level of how the world came to be, but even just the smaller level of mythologizing our daily lives. Like, I didn't go to the store yesterday. I ventured out into the unknown world. And <laughs> I didn't run a sound check earlier today. I sang a silly t- song about my cat bravely licking his butt. <laughs> so when you, when you think about how often we communicate to each other through stories and shared references especially, honestly, we probably under-mythologize in fantasy fiction, but we have to streamline things so as not to overload the readers with unrelated fluff. <laughs> That actually makes me think of Sarah Manette's Doctrine of Labyrinth series. I think she does a brilliant job of working in all of those just little passing references in the way that, especially for modern culture, I see us doing this actually with pop culture. That it's, we reference things like the Avengers or, you know, like Sherlock Holmes or something like that as our touchstones. And if you go look, actually, uh, Manette's background is in Renaissance literature, and you look at Renaissance literature, and it's leaking out the seams with these references to, like, religious stories and to classical stories. Uh, And she does a very good job of integrating those on the small scale where the world starts feeling textured without you feeling like you need to know the entire story of that person she just mentioned in passing. Uh, It's actually something I've taken as kind of a model for going, I want to do that. I think also some of the the mythology in particular really owes it, itself to the history of fantasy as a genre that, you know, as a commercial genre, a recognized institution, it's founded on Lord of the Rings. And what did Tolkien do? He wrote the Silmarillion. <laughs> and so, especially with a lot of early epic fantasy, like David Eddings comes to mind for this, you know, God love him, but the Belgariad, and I think the, the sequel series as well, each book has this prologue that is like, and now I will info dump my mythology at you. And, you know, God, it's boring stuff. I skipped over all those prologues to get to the actual story. But I do think... Wise choice. I do think there's an element of that was kind of how Tolkien did it, and so that's how a lot of Tolkien's imitators felt they had to do it, and that has stamped the genre as a whole, especially when you're looking in the corner of epic fantasy. And I think that bringing up Tolkien is very apt because, I mean, he was... I mean, from a scholarly perspective, too, very interested in the concept of myth Mm -hmm. and, you know, that a myth is a true story. Whether or not it actually happened is irrelevant. It's a true story. And I think that he was very interested in folding that idea and playing with that idea into his fiction. And that's something I actually wanted to make sure we hit right at the beginning here. So thank you for the lead in. Um, You know, Alyssa and I both have a background in folklore as well as anthropology, and the way the word myth gets used means a couple of different things. Uh, It's got kind of like the technical meaning when you're talking about it academically, and then there's the way that people use it in pop culture. 
as just something that, you know, isn't true. It's a made up story. And this leads to people feeling kind of upset when they hear their own very meaningful stories referred to as myths. And it's important to be clear that there's the technical sense of a sacred story, which is considered to be true kind of in the way that you say, like maybe not as literal historical truth, but still true in a different sense, uh, as opposed to, oh, well, you know, that's just a myth, meaning that thing isn't real and isn't important. Uh, so I, I wanted to make sure that we were clear on that at the start, that at least for me, when I say myth, I'm going to mean something distinct from legends, distinct from folklore, distinct from false beliefs and so forth. I mean those sacred stories which are believed to be true. It also put me to mind of many of the Tolkien imitators and so many of the things that I have read in slush and or in doing workshops where like the most important things that happen for the sake of the story they're telling are the things that happened 10,000 years ago. So you have those prologues set the tone of 10,000 years ago. Do, do we need to know this? Is this, you know, why is this relevant? Why has nothing changed? Right. There's, there's myth, but there's See, no that's mystery. That's my bigger concern, like kind of when I read things is like that is 10,000 years is a long time ago when you think about our kind of, right. you know, where we draw our important myths from and even the kind of like really foundational 10,000 years ago is like the early Neolithic. You know, we don't even remember that, people. <laughs> <laughs> Although it does make me think like bringing up Tolkien is like the kind of, you know, uh, father of this kind of fantasy. It'd be interesting to go back to look at the works of like, you know, Lord Dunsany and um, uh, Hope Mirleys who did uh, uh, Blood in the Mist mm -hmm. and, because I, my feeling of them and I've read more Dunsany uh, uh, or I remember Dunsany better is that there's a much more kind of timeless quality to them and not the same kind of, there is a world now and a world of myth before. It's more like we're still living in that world of myth that they didn't mythologize in the same way that uh, Tolkien does. Well, both of them- I that's true. It just feels like yeah. it might be true. I mean, I've read the, the same things and my sense is neither Dunsany nor Merleys were trying to do the same kind of like full creation of a secondary world. And yeah. so, they feel much more like their stories exist in, especially for Merleys, in our history. Uh, instead of needing to have the, all right, we're going to talk about how the world got made in the first place. <laughs> that wasn't necessary for their project in the way that it was for Tolkien. I agree. It just makes me wonder if 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 one of those had been like the, you know, kind of oh, mainstay yeah. bastion of what we consider modern fantasy as opposed to, and I mean, they're still definitely you know, inform modern fantasy, but I think almost a different strain of it. Yeah, well, it's the thing that I always say about Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell, Susanna Clarke's novel. That, to me, is what modern fantasy would look like if a foundational text had been Blood in the Mist instead of Lord of the Rings. That and, makes sense. And that's actually really relevant here because she certainly has that depth of, like, legend and mythology underpinning the alternate version of the world that she's presenting to you because all the stuff with the Raven King. I think that's very much in line with what we're talking about here. So with anything that has this much of a storied past and has been used this widely in um, in our genre, there are always things that we kind of wish people would maybe stop doing or do less of or reimagine or torch completely and then throw in a place. I don't know. Are there any of those that you'd like to address? <laughs> I guess I have to pick a little bit more on David Eddings because it, it definitely is the old school Oh, I'm here yeah. for that. I mean, don't get me wrong. I actually, in a way, love those books because I was so there for the character snark. For the characters just kind of riding across the landscape, snarking at each other, bring it on, I, I ate it up. But he also had the, okay, so there was this set of gods and each of those gods created a particular race. And I can literally only think of one character in the entire series who's like mixed race and just 
there was an ethnic layer to the world building that's kind of uncomfortable now. Not too long ago, did a full reread of the series and 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 did uh, and live tweeted it as I went, and I realized that the the seven races of man are like seven different kinds of white people. Pretty. Oh, uh, the the Agrarians <laughs> look kind of Asian. I think they're they're sort of a, a thin paint it, job of Asian. There's a little bit of code, <laughs> yeah. but like it is this sort of like he never quite wants to go all the way of like actually telling you what the differences in yeah. those are. So it's just, there's just sort of this light mist of coding, but on the whole, yeah, you can, you can easily miss it because all of a sudden it's like, everybody seems kind of the samey. Anyway. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it was very much the kind of um, almost planet of hats approach to the world building where it's like, okay, if you go yes. to, um, God, I'm going to have to drag some names up here. Orendia, I think, is the land where it's basically, we are in medieval chivalric Europe. Okay. You got knights in armor and fair ladies. And then down to the south, you have the kind of, like, Roman-ish merchant people in Toledra. Like, it, it's that kind of thing that every country sort of has that one characteristic painted on top of it. And that defines everything. It does not have complexity. <laughs> I remember, and I'm really going to show my age here. Back in the '90s, I was involved with a a online mush that you know that should age me very well. <laughs> <laughs> that was based on the Eddings books, and a friend of mine was roped in just to be one of the moderators on there. And somebody somebody else was like, "Well, you have to read the whole series first so you know what's going on." And he did, and then he was kind of mad. He was just like, "You know, I didn't need to read this. You could have just told me this is where the spies <laughs> live." This Trans, is where yeah, the, the land of merchants and spies and, and I would have had enough. <laughs> I would have had enough to work with. Well, it's funny, speaking of like 90s games, because it reminds me of, um, I, I always think like, yes, that's horrible, but can be turned into a positive. And what I think about is the game Torg. I don't know if anybody knows Torg. But the entire idea of Torg is that there are these different cosms, and each cosm has a different kind of genre or, or identity. So there's like the, the, the you know, space gods uh kind of cosm and there's the robot empire cosm and there's the kind of pulp adventure cosm and the entire idea of torg is these cosms colliding and different characters from different genres more or less coming together to kind of um do their thing and 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 it's really a game about genre collision and i kind of feel like that would be a fun thing to take that everybody has a flavor and kind of mix the flavors up in, in that kind of story I say I could date myself by saying that the uh, Neopets website worked very much the same way, where there was like the little Western land and the little Space land and the little Egypt land, and and yeah, that's that's my online. Uh, well, now, teller. Now I'm thinking of the uh, the setting for the Pathfinder game, where I found a graphic, or my husband found a graphic online at one point that is like the only accurate map of the path map of the Pathfinder world. Uh, and it has things labeled on it like Viva la Revolution for Galt and uh, Conan versus Magic Robots from Space for Numeria. And really, taken en masse, the Pathfinder world is basically the let's take all the flavors and just throw them together in a salad bowl so that they can ram into each other. Like, you want your Conan versus Magic Robots from Space dealing with Transylvania? Go for it! <laughs> you just send them to Istalab, you're good. <laughs> The other thing that I think I would like to see an end to, and this again gets back to the myth and legend stuff, is uh, the the style of thing where, oh, the characters, you know, have this problem, and so they find a book which contains perfectly accurate information that is exactly what they need to know to deal with that problem. 
I want more unreliable sources, you know, and more yeah. shit we gotta read through half the library before we find what we need. Or, like, you have to cross-reference everything. Yeah. Because, like, well, they call this thing this here, but I haven't heard that term before, so I have to go look it up. And, oh, it's wait, like, you, rabbit trail over here. You and just like, want that have because... Have people ever done research? <laughs> I was going to say, you just want that, Marie, because you wrote that book already. <laughs> I mean, that is turning darkness into light, is that book. In some ways. <laughs> I didn't actually think of that until you said it just now, but I suppose there is some truth to that. At least on Buffy, they would regularly be, like, searching through books and, and finding references like there's something like this. But I don't think that's what we're actually dealing with. They're, they would at least show yeah. the work. There, there would be a research montage. Even through montage. I have to say, well, and again, like, kind of getting back to that point that you made, Marshall, that, like, do things really not change in 10,000 years or 1,000 years or 100 years? <laughs> that, like, your, your research, the further back you're going, gets more complicated and yeah. not just because the languages get weirder. Yeah, fragmentary. Like, the sources. whole way you understand information gets weirder the further that you get away from it because it's constructed differently. Mm -hmm. So, you know, the, the, the magic book of all-knowing always knows exactly the answer to your problem. Um, yeah, or, also gets affected by that weird well, <laughs> I was gonna say, Or the books refer to something that is so commonly known that mm. they never actually bother to explain it. I'm reminded there's a thing in Welsh folklore about the big hairy hand. Uh, that is a thing that appears in one of the Rhiannon myths, I want to say, and it reaches into the stable where Rhiannon was basically sent to live like she's a horse, but she's not a horse. And it reaches in and it grabs her kid and it drags her out. And it's theorized that among Welsh people, everybody knew what the big hairy hand was. Everybody knew where it came from and what it wanted and what it was doing and why it was there. And so it never actually explains in the text what the hell is going on with this big hairy hand? It's just the hairy hand comes in, takes the kid and is gone and it never comes up again. And I think that there's, I know that there's other things in other texts that, that have that same thing, but I always think of it about the big hairy hand in Wells. Yeah, you see that in Mesopotamian research, um, like going back to uh, Sumer and Akkadia and so forth. And yeah, there's all these things that get referenced where it, it might be like a mythological creature or it might be an official who held a particular rank. We're like, we have no idea what that word means in terms of like, what did the official who held that title do? What kind of creature was that demonish thing that you're talking about? Because yeah, they didn't explain it. Everybody knew what that was. It would be like if, you know, you're reading something about the modern U.S. and there's a reference to a mayor and you're like, what's a mayor? What does a mayor do? It's maybe something to do with like a city? <laughs> I like to imagine that things like the big hairy hand are like the stories that all children were told if they were naughty, it would come and get you. <laughs> and like no one ever bothered to write it down because everyone just knows. Children's know, lore like, in particular. Yeah, children's lore in particular. It's like, it's like the monsters under the bed. Like if you wonder if people are like, so monsters under your bed, where'd that come from? We don't know. Yeah. It just is. Yeah. Now, anything associated with kids tends to be very badly recorded because it's mostly going to be, like, oral folklore passed down in families and in communities, and it doesn't get the, like, prestige and respect that means it gets written down in the sources which are preserved. But in some ways it's the most important of all because it's influencing all of these formative little people yeah. who then take yeah. it and go to create all the other narratives and yeah and every so often you'll you'll get people like especially of a a kind of certain age cohort who are comparing their folk their childhood folklore and kind of trying to trace it back to is this something that was very local is this something that was like somehow got spread like all across a large geographic area um but 
like we're not even certain how and then you get like the various local kind of uh, variations on it yeah my wife grew up in mexico city and i grew up in upstate new york so every once in a while we hit these really weird presumption of really shared mythology even though it's you know shared pop cultural reference that we don't have a lot of times but because we're literally you know half times we're literally not speaking the same language (laughs) (laughs) we're literally just talking you know things with the presumption that the other person understands exactly what we're talking about and the other one's like yeah what now get your adverbs (laughs) yeah i'd love to see more of that you said get your adverbs and i'm like lolly 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 right (laughs) <laughs> See? i i also wonder how that's going to change from you know i grew up there was still like you know state we were still watching like local station tv and stuff like that and cable like slowly came in but not until i was you know in my like later childhood and teens and so i'm wondering how much that's going to change as like media becomes more like language based because you can get it from anywhere where you're speaking a certain language mm-hmm. uh, to some extent yeah. Right. Like you hear people talk about some commercial like it was this ubiquitous thing, but it's like no, only if you only if you grew up in the greater Manhattan area. Is that <laughs> my my I sister and I her sister yeah. the phone number for the newspaper. Yes, we both remember because it had a catchy jingle, the phone number for the classified section of a newspaper that went out of business in I think we looked it up, it's like the late eighties. This is useless information on so many levels, and yet it's still there with us, and anybody who grew up in Dallas around that time is like, yeah. And what's funny is that I know you guys so well that I know the story better, you tell it all the time. So I've got this, like, secondary transmission yeah. thing going on. I think what we're likely to see it become is, like, the mythology of memes, and when were you on exactly. certain platforms, and were you on the platform when the certain meme was proliferating? proliferating um there's so many things like that that especially because those rise and fall so Mm -hmm. quickly now that you can almost pinpoint somebody (laughs) by which memes they're likely to continue referencing for the the rest of their lives me is that the subdivision is no longer being geographical the way that it was before you had the mass communication instead it's very much forming around like subcultures which I, you know, the, the lines of the subcultures can be drawn along various axes and so forth. But yeah, I mean, going back into the Cretaceous of memes that, yeah, people who are about my age remember when the hamster dance thing, like, went viral on the internet. But if I mention that to somebody who's, like, 21, they're gonna say, what? What hamster dance? <laughs> what now? Yeah, I, I really delight in showing <clears throat> the youths, like, the, the badger. Badger, yes, badger, 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 mushroom, 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 yeah. mushroom, mushroom. Yep. Yeah. And they just look at me like, what just <laughs> happened to me and why? Like, current why memes are equally dumb and weird. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> but I still think about the end of the world video at least once a week, like, snippets from it pop up in my head and sometimes i say them out loud and people will look at me like what <laughs> like i'll say but i am tired <laughs> be like what why do you go french when you said that it's like, oh you don't know it wasn't written on every dorm whiteboard in <laughs> when you were there in 2004 because you weren't born yet so yeah i'm clearly that... too old because i don't even know what that is yeah i i'm i gotta admit I that's what i was just smiling and nodding along because i'm like yeah end of the world video what <laughs> And thus we illustrate our point. <laughs> exactly. Well, there really we have done. enjoyed having small children because I've inadvertently taught them some of these. So like my three-year-old 
will run around and say, and the crowd went wild. <laughs> and has no idea what it's from. But I'm like just imagining then these things like proliferating in weird ways through like this intergenerational like we don't know from whence it came, but when we hear it, we laugh. And that is pretty much the. F- do not know why. That is the folklore point. I'm just imagining now your child twenty years from now just happening to watch that <laughs> movie, being like. Why? Why do I know that already? <laughs> yeah, it makes me think of my mom. <laughs> so th- that's a good segue to where do myths come from, anyway? <laughs> I mean, if we're talking myths specifically, like in that sacred story believed to be true sense, this is one of those questions that people dedicate their careers to trying to answer. I don't Indeed. know that we'll really <laughs> succeed at it here. Uh, certainly. If I'm remembering correctly, and this is where I put the asterisk of I haven't been in grad school in like 12 years or so, and so I'm rusty on this, but I believe the the super technical definition of myth that I worked with back then was that it's not just a sacred story believed to be true, but specifically one that is trying to explain the origin of something fundamental in the world. So it's like, where did the sun come from? How did death come into the world? That sort of thing. And so a lot of it is that impulse of there are things in the world we don't understand and we're trying to come up with an explanation for them. That's kind of the like easy answer to where they come from, but who came up with that story in the first place and how and how did it get propagated early on? Until somebody invents a time machine, we're really not going to be able to answer that. (laughs) Uh, For other kinds of things, though, if you're talking like legends and folktales and so on, you know, some of those you're more able to trace because their their origins are more pinpointable at a specific point in time that maybe is actually within history and historical recording. So to some degree, a myth is a story of where the author has been lost to... I mean, yes and no, because certainly if you look at like modern day religions, the ones that were invented within or invented is sort of the wrong word, but the religions that got started within the last couple centuries, like there are cases where you can look at it and say, we know exactly where the sacred stories of this religion came from. It was that person in the year 1841 right there. Just as a random <laughs> I, The year was picked at random, honestly. I can't remember a specific date for any actual religions. Um, but yeah, it, it, it's the kind of thing where the more recent ones you can actually say very specifically, but then uh, other religions, it's you know 2,000 years ago or 4,000 years ago or however long, and then we don't always know um, because there are either no records or they're fragmentary and we don't know the terms and all the things we talked about before. I might say, too, that not always the case, but sometimes it's also um, communal in that there are layers upon layers Mm -hmm. that it kind of cycles through and gets either changed or added to or adapted. And so even if you even if you could go back and figure out who wrote it down first, that person was perhaps just writing down something like I'm thinking of um, like some of the stuff that Apuleius wrote down, right? Mm -hmm. that it's like these are almost more like collections of he didn't make up the story he wrote down something that he had encountered and that person who was telling it had encountered it somewhere else and so you have this kind of layered effect of it becomes something that no one person really owns um which isn't always the case because sometimes you do have an author yeah um but even when you do have a known author there's still that that element of community ownership that we have accepted this and we have folded it into our narrative in some way and changed it over time i actually had a short story idea years ago when i was in graduate school it's not a very good idea which is why i haven't written it 
But okay, we've gotten time machines and people have gone back and answered things like, you know, who was Jack the Ripper and all the, the questions people are actually interested in. And now you're left with like the folklorists who still believe in the historic geographic method trying to find like the earliest or version of like the Sleeping Beauty tale or something like that. Because we can certainly see, especially with things like folk tales, where you've got, you know, the, the tale type that gets spun out into different forms across different cultures. And so you can say these definitely all trace back to some kind of common root. But where was that? When was that? What did it look like back then? There's a point at which you can't really know. Yeah, I think the the metaphor I've heard used a lot is the river metaphor, where even if you find a tributary a, a source. It is not necessarily the source, the most important source. There's a lot that has contributed uh, along the way. There's a lot that's changed on, along the way. And yeah, so it's, it's, it is difficult to even say that there is a source right. or even a main source for mm -hmm. something like this. Um, and I'm, then I'm going to give the controversial, and I think that's somewhat true of all authorship, just in terms of all the things that we bring into, uh, uh, you know, where things come from. Yeah. What we're influenced by. What we're influenced by, et cetera, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So if we think of a myth as a um, true story that might be a lie, who knows, um, what what truths do those myths tend to reveal, especially when we're world building? Like, how can we use those myths to reveal truths about the culture that we're talking about? Oh, well, I was going to say, I, I think in many cases, it's, it's going to be things that are, are very common experiences uh, for people in that society. And so um, if you have a society where there are some things that are going to be pretty common, like death, disease, things like that, there's some things that are usually pretty common societies like marriage, whatever the interpretation of family relationships are, whatever the interpretation of, of love is, things like that are going to be the places where you tend to get the, the myth water seeping the lowest and you're going to get the biggest accretion of myths uh, and the kind of ways that they're telling you about uh, what, how this works in the society, uh, what it means, how it got that meaning, and in many cases, how that meaning can be subverted, because I think a lot of myths are a lot more subversive, a lot of myths and folklore, folk tales are a lot more subversive than we necessarily give them credit for, um, especially when we think about, you know, when you're just thinking about the study of the Grimm's and how it felt like folk tales are meant to reify certain behaviors it's not necessarily as much the case as, as we originally might have argued yeah especially if you look at the sources the groups were drawing on versus what they published which very much did have kind of a german nationalist propaganda kind of mission behind it but that doesn't yeah. mean german folklore as separate from the grims necessarily had that kind of mission i think also a lot of these stories are going to one way or another express both kind of the values of the society and then, and this is where it, it can become very pertinent for people writing fantasy, um, like the cosmological principles that underlie the world. Uh, what comes to mind for me there is if you look at pre-colonial Mesoamerica, so like Mayan and Aztec myths, you see a whole lot of stuff there which kind of comes down to the basic principle of the world requires sacrifice to function. Nothing comes without a price. And so over and over again, you see this in the myths where there is some kind of key sacrifice that gets made in order to like create the sun and the moon or cause the earth to bear fruit or whatever, because that's a fundamental principle of Mesoamerican cosmology is that everything comes with a price. And so that's reflected in the myths. I feel like there are a lot of ways in which cultural myths and, and folklore reflect both what a society values and thinks of as its heroic traits, 
but also what mm-hmm. they fear, what they view as threatening to their society. And I'm thinking of how Arthuriana developed over the centuries. And I mean, you want a mythos where we know a lot of the authors, <laughs> yeah. but no, no one person gets credit for the myth. And, and it's a lot of the pieces of what we currently think of as inextricable from the legend don't turn up until 600 years in when some French yeah. guy got a hold of it. But, but as you look at it over time, like who the villains are and what they're doing changes. And it shows you a lot of the like political pressures that were happening in England or France at those mm-hmm. particular moments. And, and I think that's really an interesting thing to pull apart um, to figure out what is underneath yeah. The myth and, I think and it's funny that you mentioned Arthurian because I know that uh, for Tolkien at least part of his project was a response to that French guy creating England's like main mythology and him being like no we don't want French mythology to be the basis of England so I'm going to make a whole new one that's like English and then he went to the you know Norse because <laughs> <laughs> England is a great example of the like you just kind of keep scraping away trying to find what counts as like the truly fundamentally English because like is it the French stuff is it the Norse stuff is it the Celtic stuff <laughs> where do you find English in the middle of all of that yeah <laughs> one of the, I was thinking too that one of the things I find really interesting in terms of like what kinds of myths you can mine as a, a fantasy writer is that historical narrative is in and of itself kind of a myth yeah. Um, so the, the way that you tell history um, creates a myth of like national identity and kind of current values. Um, and, you know, we, we don't always think of history as being mythic because, I mean, we can actually look up those dates and they really happened. But, you know, like the distinction we set aside at the beginning of the episode, myth doesn't mean didn't happen. Myth means a story that conveys some kind of truth. And especially when we're talking about foundational stories, where a country came from, where, what it grew out of. Um, and I think, I mean, especially with America, when you look at the, um, the storytelling that we have around founding, around early frontier, around westward expansion, like a lot of that is like highly mythic. Yeah, I think I would, because of the the distinction I made before, I would talk about a lot of that in terms of legends rather than myths per se, because they're not, we, there's a sense in which we can say, you know, sacred in the, the you know, this is important to our culture <laughs> or our country. Uh, but legends, unlike myths, tend to be situated in historic time and to refer to real-world locations. Uh, I mean, myths sometimes do, but not always. Um, and they're, they're much more bound, basically, to specific times and places. And so I think there's a huge amount of legend building that goes on around, yeah, the founding of a country or the reign of a particularly uh, you know, good or bad, notorious ruler, that kind of thing. You get an enormous amount of that. And I think that that distinction can actually be helpful um, as a model for writers to keep in mind when they're thinking about to to kind of separate out what is the the mythology, the underpinning of like the the assumptions that our society is based on versus the legendary of you know what are what are the great events that happened? Why were they great? Who were the people that were great in them? Who were the people who were left out of them? Um, like, I think that can be a valuable thing to consider when you're creating, like, the, the background of the world that you're, that you're telling a story in. Especially because of what Marshall said a little bit ago about the 10,000 years ago, blah blah happened, and then there's apparently just nothing in between. And I, I feel like there is that strand of epic fantasy that pays a lot of attention to these sort of cosmogonic myths about where the world came from. 
and that has no historicity to it whatsoever in either the like objective these are the events sense or in the here are the legends we tell ourselves about what's happened since then they're missing that layer and that's what makes it feel so hollow to me like okay you can tell me where the world came from but you can't tell me anything about what was going on 300 years ago got it (laughs) or or if there are a handful of key events those are the only events i mean again this this is gonna end up being a lot of picking on eddings but he kind of deserves it (laughs) (laughs) on so many levels but like he basically came up with three key historical events and as far as you can tell reading the books that's all that happened in the world is those you know and beyond that nah not much like people talk about this war that happened 500 years ago like it's living memory to be fair there are like there are historical like real world examples you can point to where people still bear very solid grudges for things that happened hundreds of years ago uh, but I think there is a challenge here for the writer. I can't think of any real world examples. Can you? <laughs> I've come on up blank. Uh, like we don't even leave statues or anything. No, like that. no. <laughs> yes, I, I, a person living in Richmond, oh. Virginia, have absolutely no idea what might be a relevant real world yeah. analog. Yeah. And I'm just and, and, but again, it's useful because you can start to think, okay, well, if that's something that still matters to people, why does it still matter to people? Right. How is it reflected? Exactly. Like, how are the things, the conflicts that were happening back then, like changed or 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 undermined or subsumed and are coming up again in the yeah. turn of the repressed kind of Lacanian sense? Yeah. No, we remember those things because they're still relevant in some fashion now. Uh, yeah. Right. And and have been reinvented. In yeah. one or more ways since their actual incarnation. Right. Yeah. Now there is the the challenge in the <laughs> fictional sense that you know okay there maybe not are a lot of historical events that are being mentioned in a story, but that's because you can't fit everything in there, right? Uh, yeah. And so either you've got to have the the kind of ceremonial trick of you can mention things with just a light enough touch that it adds flavor without feeling like a loose end or something. Uh, or it's got to be in some fashion relevant to the story, and then it's usually going to be a small number of things. Um, I will say, as, as a semi-counterpoint to the David Eddings slagging, um, I actually do... Uh, I have a complicated relationship with the Wheel of Time. Uh, <laughs> but one of the things I will say for Jordan is that you've got your big cataclysmic event that happened thousands of years ago, and then I could name for you multiple historical events since then, and there's just enough of them that even though there's not a lot... I have that feeling of there's more stuff that just wasn't relevant. I believe that there is more like history. Time has it. passed. Right. There is a sense of the world has not been static that entire time. There have definitely been some other big events that happened and some smaller events around them. And my brain goes, okay, I buy into the idea that there has been history in the last few thousand years, even if I can't tell you all. But it's a fine grained thing of how you put that into a fictional story and have it feel like it's adding rather than just being like, let me show off my world building to you. Without the story <laughs> right. being 14 books of, you know, a thousand pages each. Yeah. Right. <laughs> well, I, think, I think that's that's a really good question, craft-wise. What do you, what do, you do <laughs> craft-wise? You know, to make it feel feel real. And, and in what ways, like, where are the spaces that you can fold in myth? Mm. Myth, I actually think, is in many ways the hardest. Like, in, in the strict sense, myth is the hardest, and yet it's also the thing that, because of Tolkien, etc., it's where a lot of writers go first, 
they feel like they need to know how the world was created. And I'm like, actually, for most novels, you don't. That's really not what's important here. Where that kind of story would come in is, okay, so there's this scene going on, and you decide that you want it to be happening in the middle of some kind of religious festival. And so I actually, when I teach, like, religious world building, what I try to focus on is the lived experience of the religion. What are the practices your characters engage in and why are those their practices? So the festival, there might be some mention of, yeah, it commemorates this particular event in our like kind of mythological uh, cosmology, but that's a background detail for your characters running around the festival doing something else, as opposed to, now you must understand how death came into the world. Sit down, children, and hear the story. Yeah, I think another place where it can it can really come in is is just in everyday language and colloquialism yes. in very subtle ways. Um, and Maria, this is something Maria and I have in the Mask of Mirrors, which is that um, pattern and weaving and textile metaphors form the basis of uh, one of the ma- like one of the magic systems and a lot of the worldview of one of the cultures. And so that ends up like kind of just spreading through uh all of the language so that even though we never necessarily say i don't remember if we say or not that that's important it becomes obviously important because that metaphor keeps on being used in everyday colloquialisms mm-hmm. all throughout the book and the funny thing is we we never actually have defined anywhere in there how the world was created if you asked me i'd say yeah there's probably some weaving related myth for how the world got created but i have no idea for what the it is yeah for the Brasenians. <laughs> But I've got no clue what that is, um, because that wasn't actually relevant to the story. What was more relevant was that pervasive image, like you've got sacrifice as a pervasive image in Mesoamerica. That it's just going to show up in ways that make you go, this is clearly fundamental, without you ever telling me what the foundation itself is. Yeah. Or I think probably if you're thinking like Olympian, you know, Greek myth, uh, arete, that, that kind of excellence, like uh, uh, excellence of, of effort and mm-hmm. athleticism and art. Um, Arate would, I think, be kind of the one of the founding understandings of Greek yeah. mythology. Yeah. But I think also the best thing to do is to keep everything feeling relevant to people's daily lives, <laughs> yeah. which is why things like, oh, this one thing that happened 500 years ago being like the only thing people talk about often feels this like this very false thing because it then creates the sense of like, well, there's nothing that happened 30 yeah. years ago that shaped who we are. There was that movie on Netflix a couple of years ago that was bright. Oh, God. Was like oh, God. It was so bad, especially on a world. Oh. You should, listeners, you should have seen everyone. <laughs> yeah, that was kind of a mass cringe on the screen. Yeah, you sit there and you watch that film and you go, how do they think they got to this place given where they think they started? Like, did they not at least map out the path? Because it makes no sense. Right, because the current modern world, except elves and orcs and everything else, has apparently been around for two thousand years. And you have guys in, you know, in the police officer's locker room talking about the the war with the Dark Lord two thousand years ago, like <laughs> like that's a thing that's still on their minds, and yet. And the other thing that happens when you don't uh, like make any effort to kind of fill in the world in that sense is. When that thing that happened 500 years ago gets brought up, I immediately go, okay, so this is going to be super relevant to the plot. Because it's got this glowing neon sign right. of it on it that says, if I bother to mention this, it's because it's super plot relevant because nothing else ever gets mentioned. <laughs> I think that's when you tend to get the, the mythology that leans into the 
the hero reborn or the chosen one tropes where like the protagonist is in a way a part of this myth- mythological yeah. heritage in a very obvious yeah, yeah. sort of way. There's also the element whenever you're doing anything resembling info dumpy in science fiction and fantasy that your audience tends to look at any sort of like myth or story that you're or history that you're giving them as absolute mm-hmm. truth rather than any you know uh, subjective like this is us twitching the story because I've noticed so many times whenever say in Star Trek or Star Wars whenever somebody mentions something that happens in the past you will see fans of that taking right. that as gospel yeah. rather than you know maybe you know when somebody says Vulcans do not do this they don't they think therefore any Vulcan who does do that that's bad writing rather than yeah maybe that's yeah. Whereas one of the, your witness <laughs> was unreliable yeah and i will say that one of my favorite things is is getting like in like having characters get into conversations about heresies or disagreements in mythology like heresy is a really fun field to write about <laughs> uh, if you want to expose the different understandings of um a myth or you know cultural con like like you know different perspectives on that war that happened 500 years ago um yeah ask people in england whose ancestors were on the cavalier or roundhead side of their civil war you're gonna get very different pitches on how that battle went go 10 feet in any direction in ireland (laughs) (laughs) including down (laughs) including down Well, I think that that's a, a really excellent point, though, that, you know, when we think of myth, it's often presented as monolithic. Mm-hmm. And in reality, there are going to be variations. There are going to be deliberate, you know, counter myths that are created. And then there are just different interpretations or different applications. Regional variations. So, you know, who who is telling the story, who is applying the story to their life, and how are they changing or keeping what is out there? I think some of that... This is totally just like my off-the-cuff theory, but I think some of that owes a bit to how we as kids tend to encounter Greek mythology. Because you'll find these very sort of thoroughly digested and organized versions of Greek mythology. And then if you go reading into the actual mythology, it turns into this giant snarl of tangled yarn with contradictory things that you're like, okay, you know, this particular deity, which of the following six things was actually their mother? Like... We've got so many different stories depending on whose text you're looking at. It's not nearly as tidy as that first image gives us, but the first image is where we usually start, where it's all very clear-cut. Yeah, going back to that question of what, what, what are we tired of seeing and would like to see less of? Clean, tidy, sanitized, well-organized mythologies, because they just don't exist in the real world. And yes, we have to simplify them for our books because we don't want to just, like... Write dump- the Silmarillion. <laughs> This, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but but messing them up a little bit, making them contradictory, giving mul- like giving multiple versions of a story, neither of which is true, um, or more true than the other. Like I I think that that's a great way to remove it a bit from the the <laughs> monolith well, and, monomyth. Yeah. Or or if you're going to give me like a super sanitized, very clear this is the story go forth version like i want the signposts that that's what's happening yeah and i want yeah. to know why and who it's serving mm-hmm. to do that like i think about and i love these they're so cheesy and wonderful but like the 1950s and 60s russian folklore films have you seen some of these i've never seen you them. know 
they're they're funny and they're you know they're cheesy low budget goofy things and clearly with you know the audience of of kids but also adults in mind but they always have the like you know peasant commoner hero saving the entire nation from insert <laughs> usually foreign bad guy here and it's you can and you can see exactly why they were writing the story that way. You know, there are no helpful rich boyers in these stories. Yeah. Even though if you go back <laughs> into the originals, there often are. It's you know, peasant Ivan, and here is his hero's journey. You know, as he gathers the people around him, and the people fend off insert evil, usually foreign entity. Yeah. Here. And it's so clear, and it's like, I can learn so much just by watching this movie about what you were valuing, afraid of, how you constructed your national mythos, you know, yeah. you, just from that. You, ask, you just present that to somebody and say, tell me, does this date to Tsarist Russia or Communist Russia? And see if they <laughs> right. can guess right. <laughs> yes. <laughs> that also, that makes me think of in uh, Watership Down, because there's such a thread of of the, the the myths of el herrera within there but the book does such a great job of not only like of you know the stories of their original warren the same stories exist in the other warrens they go to over the course of the book but they exist in with different meaning and different reception and even just in the telling because you have most of the time you have dandelion being the one who's telling the stories but there's bits where somebody else tells the story and it shifts the tone just because somebody else is the one telling that particular story and he does a great job of using that as as the myth building within the world without when each one of them is literally i'm just gonna stop the action and here's a story but yet yet it still yeah. works in a way that that it's kind of amazing that it i want to go back briefly to what you said about the um you know like vulcans never do x and so then if a vulcan does x it's taken as, as being bad writing one of the first things that you get taught in anthropology is what people will tell you their culture does and what their culture actually does are different things. And I think every dentist in the world also knows this. How often do you brush? Now how accurate is that answer? <laughs> you know? Well, and, and sometimes I think that that's like in anthropology, one of the things they say is that's not even necessarily what people are telling you is a lie. Right. Is what people are telling you is what they believe to be true, but it might not fit the action or there might be exceptions that they don't think to 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 explain to you because those are kind of assumed yeah. to be we never do this except in that instance that i forgot to tell you about <laughs> yeah but in that case it's not like we're doing this we're doing this other thing instead yeah 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 uh, or we like idealize ourselves to fit a model and then we report on the idealized self neatly kind of cutting out right. like the um the studies they do where they look through people's garbage Mm. Where they'll survey them and say, you know, how much do you drink per week? Or how often do you get takeout? And they answer, and then they go through their garbage and, like, find out what the real answer is. <laughs> and it's always quite I mean, different. part of that is also that just human memory is crap. Right. right. <laughs> and we're going to remember, I think, unless we're kind of, like, self-sabotaging, we, we usually remember a more idealized version of ourselves. Yeah, we kind of need to. In, our community. in order to function, you know. we sort of need to. Right. <laughs> But I think uh, there is definitely the problem that you run into with fiction, where when you say something to the reader, that reader will take it as word of God, unless you are really explicit about otherwise. And I know this is something the creators of the Dragon Age franchise have talked about, thinking, that yeah. everything they give to you, whether it's in a book or in a game, like if it's something a character says, if it's a codex entry, any of that is what that character thinks 
what the person who wrote that codex entry thinks. None of it is guaranteed to be the objective, accurate truth of the world. And because they're working with a sufficiently large mass of stuff, they can give you the instances where you're like, well, this thing said that, but this other thing said something different. Huh, I wonder what the truth is. It's a lot harder to do when you're working in a confined space. And fundamentally, in a lot of cases, uh, there, there's, I think, a couple things going on. One is, again, is it really worth the author's effort to go to the lengths to say, well, I've said this, but it might not be strictly true. Does that really benefit the story that much? And then the other thing is there's kind of, I think, almost like the necessary bargain between the author and the reader that, like, okay, I can rely on what you're going to tell me unless there's a good reason not to. Because if you don't have that, then you start getting the stories where there's just these, like, arbitrary retcons at random points along the way. And that annoys the audience, very understandably. So they want to feel like if they're going to go to the effort of buying into this fictional construct you've given them, that they're not buying kind of like a, a junk bond. This is actually making me think of my hatred of the, it was all a dream ending. Like, then why the hell did I just go through with that? Even though it's fiction anyway, right? So I know, like, it's not true regardless. But then I feel like my investment was just so cheapened because why did I bother caring about that thing that wasn't even real to the character? That's kind of the, right. the dream thing. So, yeah, I think that we, with just cause, are a little cautious about the, well, I might have told you this thing, but that doesn't mean it's true. And I think for those kinds uh, of contradictory things, like, when you introduce them, introducing the contradictory element as well, so that readers can know there is a point-counterpoint. Yeah. Uh, things basically. like some people say this or well the way i was taught it was blah or whatever yeah uh, in in rf kuang's uh the poppy war there's a great example of that where when her heroine is starting at this new school and a question is asked she's like this is what it is and somebody else is like that's just the bullshit they put in the in the history books and it has nothing to do with what actually yeah. happened yeah. <laughs> and in terms of working into the story if you can get two characters disagreeing about a thing that's a great way to put it in there because then you've got characterization you've got conflict instead of it just being i will for no particularly good reason tell you three different versions of this yeah you also made me think when you talked about the it's just a dream ending, which I always hate, is the kind of endings where where the author or the kind of work where the author does not pick a lane in terms of what the you know, what is actually true or not. I'm thinking of, you know, the, the kind of stories where maybe something mystical or magical is happening, but maybe not. And we're going to give you just a little bit of evidence of both and never I pick hate a that. side. As a... I hate that. It, it's about so it, like it's a personal taste thing. I'm not going to say those kinds of stories are inherently bad, but I am enough of a fantasy reader, fantasy writer, fantasy like audience that I I do not want you to be all mealy mouthed about did something magical happen or not. Yeah. <laughs> so thinking of magic, like question that I have because so much of our like real worlds miss includes some form of magic or supernatural or, you know, something that we, well, we, we assume anyway, we'll, we'll go ahead and assume for the sake of argument that magic in our world is not real. Um, even though. Depends on who you ask. Um, depends on who you ask. It has not stood up to the scrutiny of science. <laughs> well, there we go. We, 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 we do not have um, objective evidence at this time to present on this, at this time, on this podcast at this moment. Um, I mean, how does it change in folding myth into a world that definitely has magic, where it's not mealy-mouthed, where we know, like, magic exists, 
in these ways does it change how we approach these foundational myths when that there's not that difference you know there's not this it doesn't change it for me i don't think because of a couple layers um one is i'm immediately going to go back to the thing that we said we would accept for the moment uh that the people who are originating those myths in many cases they absolutely do believe that things that we would now say are impossible are possible so there's not that distinction for them the second thing is that a lot of the myths include some element of the world was different and that age has passed now and we live in a time where the kinds of deeds that you hear of in those stories aren't really a thing anymore and then there's also just a matter of scale that like the things gods do versus the thing that mage on the street corner can do they're on a different scale uh but i do think it, it may have effect on things like you know the legends where we have stuff that's kind of more on the level not quite like a tall tale but that sort of thing where it's just a little bit larger than life i think where you put the boundaries of a little bit larger than life is a bit different when the scope of normal life is a little bit broader yeah and i think also that's a really good point yeah kind of building on marie's thing is that a lot of magic depends on pattern recognition and we are really, really, really good at false pattern recognition, which means we're really good at seeing magic, whether or not it's real or actually there. I'm thinking um, of how The Secret Garden, if you'd asked me when I was like nine, I would have told you that's a fantasy novel. Oh, totally fantasy novel. There's all sorts of magic going on. Yeah, there's, um, Julie Andrews has a book out that's similar that uh, uh, has, I, I could have sworn it had all sorts of magic going on and then it, uh, Mandy that was the name of the book and it turns out like no magic at all there was just a, a cool house in the background with shells yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but no the um I, I this is actually something that I I've been trying to finish so that I can post it on Twitter um you know part of the how do you build this stuff in your world well some of it is you just make up stuff that goes nowhere in the books and then you post it on Twitter instead uh <laughs> Because I've started doing this for some of the folklore we've made up for the world of the Rook and Rose books, that it's not going to go anywhere in the novels. It doesn't need to, but we've made this shit up and we want people to know it. Um, so it's world. There's magic. Like, there, there's pattern reading, which is like a kind of fortune telling, and there's all kinds of other magic. And yet there's this folktale we've got in mind that involves a, a sort of culture heroine named Clever Natalia and this, like, evil sorcerer. I'm like... Evil sorcerer. Like, they don't even use the term sorcerer, really, in the setting. And so, yeah, this is something that your average Versenian would look at and go, oh, yes, that's folklore. Because evil sorcerers who can do things like change into other shapes, those don't exist. But all this other magic, that's real. (laughs) You're still going to have differences in what people believe to be real versus, oh, clearly that's just a made-up story. (laughs) Yeah. That just makes me think of in Firefly. It's like, what? That sounds like science fiction. Sweetheart, you live in science yeah. fiction. <laughs> <laughs> well, it, it, and also, um, there's a, I don't know if it's still ongoing, but I was reading it for a while, um, Tales of M.U., which was this kind of like uh, web novel episodic thing that... Um, By Alexander uh, Aaron. Yeah, Alexander Aaron. Um, and it very much takes place in, it's basically an urban fantasy of a D&D world. If you took like a D&D type setting and now it's their modern day and you got students going to college where like dungeon delving is a sport on campus, that kind of thing. But the the like role-playing games that they play are set in a completely non-magical world. <laughs> basically, our world is their D&D. <laughs> and it's just a fun... They, they, they tabletop RPG uh, coffee shop. Yeah, kind of things like that. <laughs> Pretty much. I yeah. can completely see like, that. You know, all that TV show about what if you had to investigate crimes with no magic? <laughs> <laughs> well, I think that kind of 
actually highlights the, the other route you can go to kind of emphasize the difference and emphasize the magic in the world is thinking about the mundane applications <coughs> of the magic, mm -hmm. like having the magic integrated in a technological kind of a way. Um, because that, that means that the, the magic that people are dealing with isn't something that's like all out there and numinous and inexplicable and everything like that, but that it also has like a kind of a, a grounded, practical, um, like non-numinous quality that everybody, everybody just accepts as given. And so you can have the strange numinous magic going on, but you can also have the kind of grounded technology mm. that just happens to be a magical technology and contrast those two. Though it does depend on what kind of there story was... you're telling. Yes. There was this failed pilot that was really interesting, but you know they didn't take it to series. Mm -hmm. Where the idea was, it was basically like the modern world, except everything that we accept as technology is actually is magic in that world and done through magic. Like if you know your heating system in your house is gone, it's because the you know the vines that the magic vines that you use to keep your house heated have a curse, and you have to call somebody to come and mm -hmm. decurse it. And that's just, I mean it's presented in the same mundanity as the calling you know calling a repair guy and and then like so everything that they did was fully not magical so things that were technological were weird and mysterious to them and the twist at the end of the pilot that i guess was going to drive the series is this unsolvable murder that they could not figure out how it could possibly happen was done with a gun and that's you know that's the arcanity of like what is this thing that can just kill a person and leave no trace. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it, it does depend on your setting um, because, yeah, like, if basically all of your everyday needs are being taken care of by magic, that's going to be in some ways the same and in some ways a very different situation from all of our stuff being done with technology. And I'll admit, I get a little bit frustrated with the stories where all of the magic is just very routine and mundane and, like, reliable and explicable. I want that numinous element, and I'm fine with worlds where the only magic is sort of distant and numinous and it's not in the everyday. Um, I prefer that over the ones where the balance is flipped in the other direction. It's actually part of why, like, China Medieval stuff doesn't really work for me. Like, when you're mining ore to get your thaumaturgical particles out of it, it's it doesn't feel like magic to me anymore. It feels like that's just another name for petroleum. The, the other thing, the thing you said a uh, ways back that I started to think about when, like, what do, like, creation myths mean in worlds where gods are active characters within the world? Because I think that creates something radically different if, like, if your god is just hanging out at the temple down the street and like you can go and and have a chat with him and, and it might not go well for him, <laughs> that, the fact that that they're just there and, and present in a more concrete way can really change the way that the myths and the creation myths of the world would go because it's no longer it is no longer like do we believe in this god it's like we believe in this specific god, because he's the one who's in our city right now. And <laughs> well, it makes me think about. Well, and and and, and then it's like, is is creation then a thing that happens in the past, or does he still like throw something new out Tinker. there once in a while? <laughs> Let's just, you know, huh, I, this has been. Fun. I made a new kind of goose. Here it is. <laughs> or, yeah, or like, this has been fun, but uh, your 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 jungle environment, eh, desert. No. <laughs> That kind of makes me think about the the relationship. Um, I think, especially in a lot of Asian uh, cultures, with 
the emperor and kind of the emperor as a, a god figure and this is true of all the other cultures as well because in in many respects um and i know like people have actually written on this and i think maria you and i might have actually talked spoken about this a couple times that um in many ways yes the emperor is a god because the emperor has all the powers of a god in terms of being able to intervene in people's lives change them in in very real ways like go ahead sorry no no it's um i've talked in many places about my my new blog crush uh a collection of unmitigated pedantry uh that's what it is yeah yeah. which i usually abbreviate to a coop because a collection of unmitigated pedantry is way too long to say all the time uh it's this guy named but kind of delightful. Yeah. It, it's probably of interest to the sort of people who like your podcast. Uh, <laughs> the guy who writes it, Brett Devereaux, is primarily like a military historian of like the ancient world and medieval Europe, but he understands that this is intertwined with a lot of other things. And so one of his earlier series, uh, he went around the internet a little while back. This is how I discovered it, because he did an analysis of, I think it was the Siege of Gondor. Um, and then that led me to reading pretty much the entire archives on his site, including something where he talked about polytheism in the classical world. And basically he said the relationship with gods in, uh, Rome in particular was very much a transactional thing of like, Hey deity, I would like it if you could do this thing for me. And if you do that, I will sacrifice a bull in your honor. We good. Okay. Um, and when you think about it in that sense, especially because the, the word numinous, I think, if you trace it all the way back to its very early roots, it basically indicates, like, with a nod of the head. That basically, the god can just, like, nod their head and it will be so. And when you think of it in those terms, and then you look at the emperor, and you say, okay, so here's this community in, like, the Near East who says, hey, emperor, if you do this special, like, trade agreement thing for us, we will build a temple in your honor. And the emperor nods and says, make it so. All of a sudden, the difference between the emperor and a deity is one of scale rather than any fundamental difference. (laughs) Especially because the gods, one of the points that Devereaux makes is the gods were seen as part of the community. They're maybe not literally sitting physically in the temple. I mean, their image is there, but they're maybe not like up and walking around. Uh, So it is a little bit different from what we see presented in fantasy. But it also makes me think of a book I keep on recommending in, like, every other panel and interview I do, uh, Celestial Matters by Richard Garfinkel, where it's it's basically hard science fiction if the science were Aristotelian biology and Ptolemaic astronomy. Like, yes, that is literally how the world works. Go, now do hard science fiction. <clears throat> and you've got the, the Delian League of Athens and Sparta fighting against the Middle Kingdom and, and so forth. But one of the things that really struck me in that book is the main character gets invited to speak at the Academy, Plato's Academy, And he decides he wants to talk on the topic of history. And so he receives a visitation, a divine visitation from the muse Cleo, the muse of history, which is to say he gets inspired. Those are treated as exactly the same thing. The experience of inspiration is the divine presence of the muse. Those things are not separable from each other. And I read that and just like, mind blown. And so I think there's like some really interesting material in there of the presence of the divine. Like, what is that exactly? And, you know, you can feel like you're experiencing that without it being somebody who is physically up and walking around and hanging out in the temple. And it raises interesting questions of what is a god anyway? Speaking of questions we will not successfully answer (laughs) on this podcast. Well, I think one of the interesting tendencies... um, I, I have seen more in fantasy and I, I don't know if it has any sort of, I can't think of it having any sort of root in real world, real world mythologies 
um, is the idea of the reciprocal relationship between uh, a, a patron god and their worshipers. And I'm thinking about things like, you know, American gods where, you know, the, the, the lessening of worship lessens the power of the god or Heaven Official's Blessing, which is this uh, Chinese web novel that I'm addicted to and, and, and obsessed with, where it, it really lays out a model of heaven uh, that's, that's, again, very much kind of a, in a Chinese model where, um, you know, it's a big bureaucracy and the gods have duties and the worshipers ask for things and they make uh, uh, sacrifices to gods and, and, and petitions to gods and then the gods are given these duties and if they do the duties and they get merits and that increases their power and so there is this it's it's you know gods is in a service industry <laughs> <laughs> where they are expected to to help their petitioners and that increases their power and if they don't then they weaken and eventually like cease to be gods I think, um, I think there is at least a version of that in reality, which is kind of the, okay, well, if my nation goes and, or like my tribe or whatever, goes and beats up the neighboring tribe, well, we've each got our own gods, and clearly my god can beat up your god. <laughs> <laughs> and so you will get things of like the, the, cha the, the change in worship, because, well, clearly that god is the more powerful one, so I ought to be siding so over there rather than with this useless schmuck. <laughs> So we are well over our hour, um, which I am not at all surprised As usual. or unhappy about. Um, <laughs> but before we run out of, of time, I did want to make sure that we had time for my favorite part of any guest star podcast episode, which is getting our piece of world building from our guest stars. You want to go first, Alyssa, or should I? So are there any like guides for this or do we just like throw out something random or whatever you would like? It can be related we... to what we talked about tonight or completely unrelated. We have gotten such an amazing variety of. Okay. And someday we need it's to trivia. actually write it down. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So I'm going to, I'm going to actually take some, I, I, uh, one of the lecturers at the program that Marie and I both studied at is a man named Henry Glassy. Who He's is amazing. One of the most amazing speakers you will ever be blessed to hear. He is just an incredible storyteller. I can sum this uh, up by saying three and a half hour slide lecture, and I'm awake and riveted the entire time. <laughs> from from 6 to 9 p.m. Yeah. 6 to 9.30 p.m. Evening class. And, like, not only I was awake, I would have pages of notes, uh, which included story ideas, because all of his, like, lectures would have some sort of story idea. And he has this lecture on carpet weavers. And one of the details that he shares about uh, carpet weaving, Turkish carpet weaving, is that when a carpet weaver is, is doing a piece, they will deliberately incorporate a flaw. And the idea is that because you don't want to be, uh, you need to have an imperfection because you don't want to be competing with God, who is perfect and created the world perfect and everything. And so my idea is that uh, uh, whatever entity was responsible for creating the world, um, had like a kind of a similar idea going into the creation of the world. And so they deliberately incorporated a flaw uh, because they couldn't have a perfect world uh, because that would be too arrogant you know, or something too arrogant. <laughs> and, and so they incorporated a flaw into the world, but it's not a flaw you're allowed to fix because that would be too arrogant. So it's, it's, you have to accept that the world you live in is flawed. And, and that is a kind of an admonition against arrogance. 
I like okay. that. <laughs> but it means that everything everybody ever makes is always has like some small flaw. I actually really like that not arrogant. as as a sort of like answer to theodicy, the problem of evil. Like, why does evil exist in the world? Because that was the flaw the creator built in so that it wouldn't be too perfect. Uh, the one that I came up with is, because uh, <clears throat> I actually do have a file where I will occasionally throw random world building ideas that don't have a home. Normally things like get integrated into something, but every so often I'm like, that's nice. Where does that go? Uh, so I went looking through that. And the one I latched onto is the notion that there are like degrees of marriage in the world where you know the, the higher degrees of marriage are a, a closer bond. And so actually what you can do is you marry the same person multiple times in order to increase your like marriage level and how closely your families are linked together. Or then basically like divorce them repeatedly to kind of decrease the level of that association. <laughs> this detail was I created love by the dramatic the potential for this. Industry. I really yeah. love it. <laughs> Yeah, just think of the negotiations you get into of like, okay, third degree marriage, yes, no, uh, you know, well, what are you going to give me for that? <laughs> you know, love I it. love you. I've loved spending my life with you, but I really think we need to go yeah. on with it. <laughs> <laughs> or even just like, I'm really busy for the next three months at work. Could we so like, like downgrade? Yeah, like I, I, I promise, I promise. Yeah, we'll marry we... again later. It's all right. Once, once I'm done with this project, we can we can yeah. go back to a different. We were level. on a break. We were on a two marriage break. <laughs> you do not get mistresses yeah. at the two marriage level. Well, that, I think that is actually kind of where the idea came from. Is this, uh, you know, the ideas of things like concubinage and such, where it's like they're they're sort of it's usually a wife, like it's it's usually not a, a male thing, but like they're kind of married to you, but kind of not exactly. Um, so, yeah. The... But, like, codifying that and making it legal and, like, I that's fascinating. <laughs> I love that. Well, it's been delightful having y'all on. How about y'all tell our listeners where they can find you on the internet and and remind them what delightful stories of yours they should purchase? Uh, individually, uh, I can be found at swantower.com or swan underscore tower on Twitter. Also swan underscore tower on Patreon, where I have been... For nearly four years now, been doing weekly essays on world building, so you know, kind of relevant to the audience of your podcast. Uh, there's also yearly collections of the essays from that, which are New Worlds Year One, Year Two, Year Three, <clears throat> which you can pick up at basically any ebook retailer. There's also print copies. This. Uh, I am Alice Helms everywhere, so AliceHelms.com, Alice Helms on Twitter, etc. and so forth, um, and. I think that's it. <laughs> well, together, I... Uh, oh, and together, yes. yes. <laughs> uh, com is the website. Uh, and actually, both that and mine have a thing where you can sign up for a newsletter, which is no more than one email per month, and usually more like one email every four months or something. Um, <laughs> and we are MA underscore Carrick on Twitter, uh, where I have started posting the, uh, the folklore stuff that I mentioned. I've got another one I want to put up. Uh, and also our website has a little bit right now of some information on the world building and such. We're planning on putting up more before The Mask of Mirrors comes out on January 19th. Um, and also on the folkloric front, I've got a novel under my own name, The Night Parade of a Hundred Demons, which if you know your Japanese folklore, that phrase may ring a bell. It's a Legend of the Five Rings novel that's coming out on February 3rd. I will also say on our uh, on the website... Um... We have a new widget that people can go and check out, which allows you to uh, experience a little bit of the world building that uh, we did, which is the pattern deck uh, that, that Marie created, 
so you can lay a pattern for yourself and learn about your past, present, and future. We go to the ill of it. The ill of it, and that which is neither. Yep. Well, it has been delightful having both of you on. I'm so glad that we got to do this. Um, thank you for all of your incredible wit and wisdom when it comes to myths, legends, and other lies of history. And if you ever want to come back on again, you know where to find us. It was a pleasure. Thank you so much for having us. Hi, you. Thanks for listening to this episode of World Building for Masochists and letting us help you overcomplicate your writing life. Our next episode goes up on January 20th, where Stina Light will be joining us to talk about the subtler elements of world building. We hope you join us for that one. We also hope you really like this episode. If you did, please take a minute to tell a friend, shout about us on the internet, or leave a review on iTunes. If you've got questions or you just want to tell us how cute we are, there is a number of ways to contact us. We're on Twitter as at WorldBuildCast, and our email is WorldBuildCast at gmail.com. We also have a Discord chat room linked in the About the Show page of our website if you want to come and chat with us and other fans of the podcast. We'd love for you to share the worlds you're making and help us all build until it hurts. And as a final gift for today, here's a moment with some kittens. And so there's definitely, I just got totally derailed by kitten. You can keep that in the recording if you want to. Cats are my kryptonite. Little bugger, come here.